Hi, and welcome to Strangers on the Internet, a podcast about making online dating work for you. My name is Irina Matta, and I'm a professor at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. I'm also a dating coach and a consultant for the dating app industry. And I'm Michelle Lang, a senior lecturer in psychology at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and a clinical psychologist in private practice. All views expressed on this podcast are our own and not our employers. We have told you a lot about what the research data suggests on the best approaches to dating, but sometimes dating is more of an art than a science. That's going to be one of our big topics today with our special guest, sociologist Dr. Robin Rogers. We are so excited to have with us today Dr. Robin Rogers, an Associate Professor of Sociology and the Director of Honors in the Social Sciences at Queens College, City University of New York, or CUNY. Robin received her MA and PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and worked on President Clinton's welfare reform legislation in the mid-90s as a Congressional Fellow on Women and Public Policy. She later wrote about this topic in her book, The Welfare Experiments, Politics and Policy Evaluation. She has written and been quoted in the media on the impact of big donor philanthropy and inequality, and she's currently writing a book about Gen X women, about the messages on sex and gender this cohort received as children, how these women perceive their lives to midlife, and how they envision the next chapters of their lives unfolding. Robin is divorced and has two adult sons, and she has written about many topics in the popular media, including about dating for fun and also issues related to mental health. Robin, welcome. Do you want to tell us a bit about your experiences with dating throughout your life? Hi, well, thank you for having me. Yes, I have a very unusual history in dating in that I met my, I always call him my first husband. I guess he's my ex-husband because I haven't had a second husband, but my friends always make fun of me for being hope, hope springs eternal. My first husband and I met when I was a junior in college and we married three years later when I was 23 and we stayed married until I was 38. So my experience dating was fairly limited uh, until my divorce. And then when I got divorced, under some unusual circumstances that we'll probably discuss, I had to figure out dating, online dating, apps, being a single mother, and dating, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. So it was a very, very new world for me. So tell us about the marriage and the divorce first, because I'm sure our listeners are now have had their interest piqued by your comment. Sure. Well, I had a very unusual divorce. I have said in some of my essays that I feel more widowed than divorced. My ex-husband has paranoid schizophrenia uh, and is unmedicated, refuses medication. Uh, he, he now lives, um, you know, more or less off the land. And that was not the case when we married. It was a late onset in his 30s, which is fairly unusual. So I had two young children and he was talking to God and God was answering and God was telling him that there was Buddha, there was Jesus and there was him. Um, he also unfortunately got violent, particularly towards me because he saw the world in terms of good and evil and he saw himself as good and me as evil. So I had to protect two young children emotionally and physically and, and escape the situation from a man who I had once loved very, very much, which was difficult. And so how long were you all together when it happened that you realized you were going to need to end the marriage because of this? 
That's a great question. One of the things that frustrates me when people are very critical of women for not leaving violent marriages earlier is that my marriage was not violent for the first 10 years. And that was the first 13 years of the relationship. So I was in my sort of early to mid thirties and it really became violent when I was pregnant with my second son um, when I was around 34. So by that time, not only did I have two little kids to watch out for, but my own energy was quite drained because my ex-husband had stopped working. And so I was the sole support for a family of four in New York City. We owned a building with tenants that I had to take care of, and I consulted to basically double my income at the time with my full-time job, a newborn baby, and a 10-year-old son who had ADHD. So just the raw energy to leave was very hard to find. Can you also talk about how long of a timeline and maybe even that might even not be as helpful to our listeners as understanding how many times did you second guess yourself before you realized like I really I have to leave because in your case it wasn't that the marriage fell apart on its merits and it wasn't that you all didn't love each other it was his mental illness took over and I think that must be so disorienting to go through watching a loved one go through that change and wanting to be there for them and still loving them and not wanting to leave them. And yet, especially when the violence comes up and the seeing you as the enemy, what was it like coming to that process of leaving is really the only option? That was an incredibly hard and long journey for me. And I have very few regrets in my life, including I don't regret having married my ex-husband. I do truly regret not having left earlier. I felt at the time that I would never regret trying for my marriage. And in hindsight, I do. Um, By the time we had been married at that point, about 11 years, when he began to talk to God and to get violent and to not work, and he actually pushed a shopping cart around the neighborhood and collected trash. Uh, Sometimes he would wear safety goggles that were bright orange. And I somehow, and I still don't know how I did this, managed to normalize it. I mean, I knew something was wrong and I thought he has very severe depression. And then I thought, oh, maybe he's bipolar. But the idea that he had had a real break from reality didn't hit for a long time. So I left him the first time when my younger son was five months old. So about five, six months into the abuse, well, a little bit more than that, into him becoming physically abusive. I did leave the divorce and I left for about six months. Uh, I lived in the Lower East Side. I lived in Puerto Rico. I just sort of, I had the boys with me, made it work. But I believed in marriage and I believed in death till you part. And I believed that he was struggling. And so I went back. And those years, about four years, were horrific for me and for the children. And I tried to leave or thought about leaving many times. It was on my mind all the time. It was actually quite distracting from work and child-rearing. But I kept thinking we're going to make it through the troubled times, and we didn't. I think part of the reason I had that hope comes from my personal background, which is my father was a very, very severe alcoholic until he quit drinking around 50. And he's still alive at 90. He's been, you know, <laughs> with, with the ups and downs that most people have, a, a pretty wonderful person since then. And my parents have a very good marriage now, which they didn't before. And so I took my mother's word that you stick it through and the man will return and all of these things that I now know aren't true to heart. And I stayed. 
You know, it's so interesting, the point that you're bringing up and that I literally just had another conversation with someone about earlier today who was trying to figure out about a friend who was severely mentally ill, what is likely to happen? Is this person likely to get better? And, and, and sort of various questions related to that. And you have experienced, and I have experienced, both extremes of the spectrum with uh, a variety of people, some of whom got like your father kind of miraculously better, right? And like really end up having this generally wonderful life like you're describing. And then others like your ex-husband where at least until now, right? Because yes, indeed, hope springs eternal, right? But at least until now, unfortunately, things got worse uh, or, or stayed bad rather than getting better. And, and that's, also why you know hindsight is 2020 right in terms of like realizing now oh i should have left earlier and and this was awful but while it's happening none of us know how it's going to turn out with these things whether it's a marriage or a friendship or maybe it's a sibling or anything like that or a parent or grandparent there's just no way to know and the stakes are so high when it's the father of your child like you just described Right? The stakes are so high. And if it had gone well, then you might say, oh, well, I did completely did the right thing by staying and, and all of this stuff and it was all worth it, et cetera. But, but I totally hear what you're saying about, you know, there's a certain point that's kind of like a, like a, a breaking point. And I mean, you've had a variety of interesting, shall we say, experiences with mental health generally. I, I don't know if you want to take this opportunity here to share your, your own experiences with mental health providers and, and kind of how people react, perhaps precisely because of this unpredictability of mental illness and what's really going on with someone. Do you want to comment on that? Sure. I think that the first thing I want to say is there there actually was a breaking point. There was a moment with my ex-husband where I understood how serious it was. And it came in really a flash. I was supposed to be teaching at Princeton and we had a car and something was wrong with the shower. So I had been showering at the gym and then driving straight from the gym to Princeton. And he had said he was in Connecticut on a job. And now jobs at this point came every few years, you know, we really didn't have them. So I was really hopeful. And I came back to shower and I saw him and he's about six, two muscular. He started creeping away from me, tiptoeing as if I couldn't see him. And that was the moment where it really came to me that this man was really ill. This wasn't a minor problem. This wasn't going to be fixed with antidepressants. So I did an odd thing, which is I didn't call my family. I called a colleague at work and I told her that I was getting divorced. And I think the reason I called her first was because she wasn't super close to me. We we were friendly and I felt like it was a public declaration that I had committed to getting divorced. And unfortunately, in the months after, I found a whole slew of horrific things including uh, dead animals and bones and very scary stuff, letters about harming me and the children. And I found out that he had been living in the basement on a pile of rags for, I don't know how long, a long time. And and I found out that my uh, email, something that people should be aware of, was a child's email on his account. So he had had access to all of my emails. And I found out that he had been tracking my whereabouts with a uh, 
an easy pass. So he, when he thought he knew I was out of town, he would come to the house. So I tried very hard to get him help for both him and for us. And the system would not address it because they said he had, he had rights, which I think he does. You know, and I think I'd like to talk about it, you know, after we get into a little bit more of the, the dating, because it's, it's chronological. But when I had my own brush with the mental health system, I found a very, very different outcome. And, you know, one thing I'll, I'll say just as, as a kind of a teaser for it is I think being a woman made a huge difference in how I was treated versus how my ex-husband was treated. Uh, and in short, he was treated quite respectfully, despite his lack of work, his lack of parenting, his lack of child support. Uh, and I, who had, you know, the resume that everyone dreams of on paper, was treated like someone who did not have control of my faculties, which I absolutely did. As a therapist and as somebody who teaches about mental illness, something I really try to impart to my students and just as a mental health advocate in general, when we talk about what what is mental illness, I use this descriptor of the four D's and I say it's not about you have to have them all, but you're looking for the number, the severity, the frequency the intensity of them. And so these Ds are, is the person exhibiting dysfunction, dysfunctional behavior? Are they exhibiting distress? Are they exhibiting deviant behavior? And is there danger? And again, I explained to the students, not all of them need to be present. And in cases like your ex-husband, sometimes the absence of them is also a concern. Like if he's not experiencing distress at this very distressing behavior, that can be concerning. But what I always try to advise people when they're learning about mental illness is of those Ds, the one that is the least common is danger. Most people with mental illness are not no more dangerous than anyone else. There are, when you look into some specific statistics, there are groups that are at a greater risk of danger. And even still within those groups, most people who are at a heightened risk of danger are at a heightened risk more so to themselves than to others. But once again, there are some exceptions. One of the exceptions is people who have schizophrenia who are not following their treatment regimen. And that's a question I have for you. Was there ever a time where your ex-husband was in treatment for this? And if so, was it better during those times or was he was he never in treatment? <laughs> well, he, he was in treatment. He never took medication for paranoid schizophrenia. And in fact, what I think was one of the major causes of the break he had late in life was he had a psychiatrist who prescribed him 180 milligrams of Adderall a day. Now, for people who don't know, 60 milligrams is the recommended highest dose. And higher doses than that can cause psychosis in anyone. And it's particularly likely to cause psychosis in someone who has a predisposition for it. So when, and, and this all happened after he started taking the massive quantities of Adderall. His functioning was deteriorating before then, which is why he went to see the therapist, the psychiatrist. But the psychiatrist just every time something came up, pumped up his prescription for Adderall. And it was so bad that at one point I took it to a pharmacy and the pharmacist refused to um, fill it. And I was absolutely baffled. And he said, this is an unethical amount. So I think in, in his case, the treatment by the mental health profession um, really failed him and failed us by trying to paper over significant dysfunction with increasing prescriptions for amphetamines. 
Wow, I've never heard of anyone taking that kind of, I mean, I know lots of people with ADHD who take Adderall and they're doing just fine. And, and it's, it's so interesting also looking at this from a gendered perspective of, well, clearly the only problem here is if a man is not functioning in like a cognitive or professional or whatever way. So we just got to fix that. There could not possibly be something much deeper and more sort of disturbed going on here. But but anyway, Michelle, I don't even want to jump in. I just want to throw that out there. Wow. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was just going to agree that I just think that's so sad and so tragic that that's the experience that your family had with the mental health healthcare system. And I mean, gosh, it must be so painful to, to wonder what if that had not been the treatment? What if there had been an ethical and appropriate treatment, but given what it was, it sounds like, in fact, he did not get better with treatment. He got he got worse with quote unquote treatment. And so there wasn't like a back and forth with, oh, well, I should stay because he's getting better. And and instead it was it was just getting worse. And so I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, I had a client before who her her husband similarly um, had schizophrenia and some paranoid thoughts. And one of his was about treatment providers. He felt as though they were out to get him and that medications were to control him. And so, so sometimes in situations with something like schizophrenia or other thought disorders where you have these paranoid thoughts driving your decisions, sometimes even it, they are the thing that gets in the way of getting help. And so it could be that, or in your case, just terrible treatment and in your ex-husband's case. So I'm so sorry to hear that. I did want to at least point out for our listeners that it's not the norm for people with mental health conditions to also be dangerous, but it is possible. And certainly if if somebody's not getting treatment or if they're getting ineffective treatment, uh, that that is a, a red flag and a, and a warning for we need to to be careful. We need to have greater mindfulness of maybe there would be a possibility of danger. I, I think it's what you're saying about the the lack of danger for people who um, have mental illness generally. I think that's true. There was another confounding part, which was not only was he prescribed 180 milligrams, but I found empty capsules on mirrors which I can only assume came from snorting the contents of the capsules. I don't know that. I never saw it. But then when you add what I think really, even at the prescribed level was drug abuse, you're talking about a really dangerous and scary combination of issues. And in fact, part of what helped me to finally get a restraining order, which is not that easy to get, a temporary one is pretty easy, but a long-term one is not. Uh, is that he had killed the family pets and kind of kept them to taxidermy them. And we also found skulls of other animals and such in, in jars. So it was, it was really about as scary and horrific as it gets. It truly sounds it. And for our listeners also, uh, if you're interested, so untreated schizophrenia is one of the conditions that does have an elevated risk for danger and another is substance abuse. And so certainly if those two are are combined, you know, that those are two indicators of risk. So shifting gears a little bit. So you realized you needed to get a divorce, but as you said, this is not a typical end to a marriage. In your writings about this experience, 
I pulled some quotes that really stood out to me. You said, people said I was divorced. I felt widowed. I sometimes wish someone would reach out to us, me and my family, and say, I'm sorry for your loss. And it's not how most people see it, right? They do see it as you getting a divorce, not as though you've lost the person that you love and are going through that grieving process. Can you speak some about what that was like for you? Absolutely. It, it's one of the reasons why I'm so open about my experience is because mental illness, even in the extreme form that uh, I lived with, with my ex-husband, it's, um, it's not that uncommon and yet no one talks about it and there, there's not a good template for uh, how to respond to it. I was in some ways lucky that my ex-husband's behavior was so bizarre that the neighborhood and the um, friends that we had, with a few exceptions, lined up behind me to help because they saw that this was serious and dangerous. The people on my block, I lived in a very tight-knit community, still do, you know, they sort of watched skeptically for a couple of weeks. And then one of the older women who was sort of one of the matrons of the block came up to me and uh, I just bought a dog for the boys. And she said in a thick accent, dogs are good for boys, right? And so she was giving me the okay that, that the neighborhood knew I had thrown him out because he had to be removed by the police for good cause, that I wasn't just sort of this horrible woman. Um, but we did lose some friends and the court system was very skeptical toward me. It took me in the end, I never lost, never lost, but it took six years to completely get the um, custody settled. I had full custody from day one, but he just kept challenging it and he went pro se, you know, he represented himself. So he just kept coming back and back and back until finally the judge gave me the right to decide when and if he saw the kids at all. So I think, you know, one thing that I would say to people is if you hear about someone's family dealing with a family member's mental illness, it's not that different from a family member having cancer. Like the worst thing you can do as a friend or a neighbor is turn away. The best thing you can do is, you know, my, my pastor brought over a ham one day and, you know, my neighbor jumped the fence and did the yard for me. And, and those things were just spectacular. And little kindnesses meant everything. And then the other thing I think is it's not taking sides to believe, right? If you see someone is ill, you may be able to understand that their spouse has to get them and the kids away, even if you're not against that person. So I think people tended to treat our divorce, even those who ended up lining up behind me, which was most of them, as an adversarial thing. And I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I saw it as me digging out of a very bad place for me and the children and not having us pay a huge price, whether ultimately there was more violence or just emotional, for his illness that he chose not to take medication for. Now, how much choice is involved in there? How much free will? I don't know. But for me, it ultimately didn't matter because my job was to protect them first and also myself. So, wow. How did you, after all these experiences, right, and, and having to be so strong, whether you wanted to or not, right? Having I mean, to have all these fights and, and, and as you're describing, and the court system can be incredibly difficult, again, especially from, how did you dig yourself out from all of that and, and like get back to a life of greater happiness and, and ultimately dating? Like when did you start dating again and, and what was that like? 
Oh, I, I was scandalous. I started dating immediately. Um, I was dating within weeks of having told my ex-husband that we were getting divorced. I, I don't even know if we'd filed yet. I don't think so. I had been faithful to my husband and I had been with him for oh, 17 years, 20 years, something like that. And um, I wanted to see who was around. I was not particularly looking to hop into a remarriage, although I did I did think I would get remarried. I thought I would end up raising the boys with another partner, which I didn't. But I adore men. I, I am ridiculously heterosexual against all evidence that it's a good idea. And so I just really had fun hopping out and I love dresses and I love lipstick and I had some very frivolous friends who were great. And we, we just created this frivolous, silly, beautiful world alongside this dark and horrendous world. I mean, I painted my apartment different colors and it was very colorful and bright. And I took the same approach to dating. I was very literal about dating. I didn't, I didn't overthink it. If someone asked me, did I want to go to dinner at a nice restaurant? I would think, do I want to go to dinner at this restaurant? You know, yes or no. Or do I want to go with this person? Yes or no. And I began to see dating as a territory I could carve out where I could be the me I was when I wasn't making sandwiches and, you know, fighting court battles and teaching students and handling my building, which had a rat infested infestation around that time, you know, and I had to get rid of that. So it was a, a free space for me to be creative and to play. I think that speaks to something that comes up a lot on our podcast, which is the idea that dating can be different things to different people. And so while it might sound shocking for people to be like, what do you mean you were dating within weeks of deciding that you wanted to get a divorce? I think Irina and I both honed in on this wording you used about, I was digging my way out of a very bad place. And if you're digging your way out of bad, you want good. You weren't looking, as you said, for a new relationship right away. You were looking to not be in a bad place anymore. You were looking to feel good and to have positive experiences. And as you said, to rediscover yourself because you had been so busy in multiple caretaking roles between trying to take care of your now ex-husband, your children, your tenants, um, presumably at work too, you had some, some roles there. And so it was time to rediscover yourself. And I do think it's such an important point to highlight, to remind our listeners, you can date for different reasons. It's helpful when you go into it knowing what your reason is, being clear on your own intentionality, but also trying to brush off the judgment from others to understand, well, they might think of dating as a different thing or want a different thing with it. It's okay to go for what you want. And so I think it's really awesome that you had that clarity to to say, it's time for me and to have some joy in my life again. I, as everyone does, deserves to have some joy. And so I'm excited for you that you took that attitude towards it because it sounds like you had been very long suffering by that point. Absolutely. And I was very delighted by the smallest gesture. And this ended up becoming something I learned about men. I would be so genuinely thrilled when they would buy me a cup of coffee because I had been buying everything, paying everything, doing everything, that when a man bought me a cup of coffee, I was like, oh, thank you. 
and they just would be delighted at my delight and want to take me somewhere else. And my my sons teased me about it, but I was always a very demanding date. Like if they said, do you, you know, do you want to go and get hot dogs at Nathan's? I would be like, no, thank you. And then they would up their game. And so I sort of accidentally stumbled on to some of, I think, the, the, the tricks of dating, at least heterosexual dating, that men kind of respond well in my experience to a woman who has some standards. And I think they're often surprised because we women put up with way too much, as I did. But having put up with that, I wasn't going to put up with it in another man. And so I ended up getting taken to everything. And it was fabulous. So how did that develop over time? Like, did you did you meet very interesting people? Did you end up deciding you wanted to explore something in greater depth uh, with any one of them? Like, what's the longest relationship you've had since the, the divorce? And, you know, how was that? Well, that was it. That was interesting as well. I met a man who was um, one of the founders of Capital One Bank when I interviewed him for a um, an article I was writing on a, a social stock market, basically a stock market for nonprofits. And he was involved in that. And this was within two months of my asking for a divorce. And we dated not exclusively for about four or five months, but ended up getting engaged and um, we were together for two years before we finally split up. So I did have another serious relationship. And I thought I was going to have a, a new partnership. But it turns out that I'm not actually a great fit for like a socialite. Uh, because I was publishing things that were really slamming what he was advocating And he was not all that pleased. And he more or less was like, well, you need to stop that now. And I thought, well, do you know what I do for a living? So, I mean, there are other issues as well. But when we split up, I then dated a a fair amount, but no long-term relationships. I think since then, the longest has been maybe a year and a half. But, oh boy, did I go on dates. And when I say dates, I mean dates. I mean, pick me up and drop me off at home. You know, nothing expected. That's another thing. I never felt pressure. If somebody bought me a nice dinner, then I thought they got to enjoy the dinner with me. I never felt like I owed them anything. You know, so my relationships were really often simply dating. Do you still date now? Ha! See, now this is where I get myself in trouble. Um, (laughs) I date much less now, but that I think has to do a lot with complex relationships in my life and with COVID. I I sort of got out of the habit in COVID and now I find I've been to so many beautiful restaurants. I've been to so many fabulous places that that element that drove some of my dating is kind of burned out for me. But to give you an example of some of the great stuff I got to do uh, with with the man I was engaged to when we were dating non-exclusively. I said to him, I want to go, this was before Barack Obama became president. I said, I want to go to the inaugural ball. Can you get me tickets? And he sort of straightened up and was like, I think I can. And uh, as a mother of two boys, I've learned this is also something that that men and boys, you know, give them a task and they're so happy. Um, And so he got us tickets and we went and it was fabulous. And it was so exciting. And I got to be just, you know, feet away from 
Barack Obama and Michelle Obama, and they were just stunning. And I and I talked to the wife of one of the Grateful Dead players online. I'm like, what are you doing here? She's like, oh, I'm with the band. I'm like, oh, which one? She's like, oh, the Grateful Dead. You know, so like, um, you know I, I, and, and then another time I was dating this man. I dated him for like, I don't know, three weeks. We'd been out on maybe half a dozen dates. And he said to me, do you want to go to Brazil? And I thought, why, yes, I do want to go to Brazil. And so it was for a wedding of a colleague of his in three months, but we were still together at the end of the three months. And he took me to Brazil and I got to go to this insane wedding. Now, there were low, lower levels of the same thing, which is I got to go hear great music. You know, I was like, do you want to hear music? Yes. Do you want to go to a, a an art gallery opening? Of course, you know. And so this just became a great way. And, and women do have this advantage. We have so few. We should take advantage of it. We get invited into men's lives often as visitors. You know, I was never I was never fully a part of it, but. I went to the Friars Club a lot. That's a fun place where it used to be. So I got to do stuff and to know people. And I would say I like most of the men I dated. I didn't love them, but I enjoyed them. And I think they enjoyed being with me. I have a question for you. Have you dealt with, encountered mental illness in anyone you've dated since? And how was that or those experiences you know, coming from the background that you came from? That turns out to be a very interesting question because I dated a man who I really liked. I really liked him. He was my non-engaged longer relationship. And I don't know if he was ever diagnosed with anything, but I saw behavior that looked very delusional to me. And I and he was never violent or he was always lovely to me, but he seemed to have some fixed beliefs that I thought were kind of off the wall. And I, I left him because of that. And I, I've, I've often had mixed feelings about it because I thought, oh, maybe I, maybe I could have just lived with the little green men. But no, I think it was the right choice because I, having been through that, couldn't go through it again. So I, I don't know that everyone would need to leave a situation like the second one. The first one, I think pretty much anyone would have to leave. I think you can love someone who has mental illness, even if it includes delusions, as long as you're you know, you're not being destroyed, which I was in my in my marriage. So you wanted to tell us uh, about, you've already alluded to your own experiences with the mental health system. And so what happened? You said you want to tell it chronologically. When did the uh, things unfold? What unfolded? And how did it affect your life and even your dating life subsequently? Sure. So after all of this, right, we go fast forward 10 or 15 years, right before the pandemic, I was in a really hard time in my life. And a part of what made it so hard was I was, I I never know exactly the the right technical terms for what part of perimenopause or menopause you're in, but I I was having significant issues that uh, after this whole nightmare that I'll explain unfolded, I found out probably was largely hormonal. I I had, according to my doctor, like zero estrogen. And within three days of her putting me on estrogen, these problems sort of went away. But at the time I was incredibly stressed. I was dealing with, I still had two kids at home, dealing with tons of work stuff, working on this book, dealing with the house. And I was exhausted. I'd been doing this nonstop and by myself for years. And 
my family of origin, you know, as I kind of alluded to, it was kind of chaotic and not so, and in a good way, like not in a way you have to walk away from, but in a way that can become disruptive. And um, so I had decided that my parents were, I was not going to jump in and rescue my parents every time they got into a, a crisis because they were getting into their 80s and they I had offered them to live in my building and offered lots of things. And they were taking a path that I thought was risky, um, staying on their own. And so I sort of backed away from it. Well, that caused tensions with my sister, as one might expect. And um, one night I came home from work. It was in February of 2020. And I was really depressed. And the next day I called my, my, I had been on antidepressants since around the divorce, a little before the divorce and, um, had had some anxiety issues, but all very kind of garden variety. So I called my therapist and I called my psychiatrist and said, look, I'm really not feeling good. This is bad. And I made an appointment to see my psychiatrist within a couple of weeks. And it was definitely a rough go, but my sister and I got into a big fight about caring for my dad and about kind of our childhood. And um, she stormed off and she and I had been incredibly close. And um, when she came back, my therapist was on. Oh, sorry. Critical part that I missed. When she left, I decided I needed to go to sleep. And I had a prescription for Clonopin, which was to take two milligrams of Clonopin per day. So I counted out and I took six milligrams. And I Googled to make sure that was a safe amount. And I saw that there was, in fact, no known lethal dose of clonopin. So I took six milligrams and I told that to my sister and I went to bed and she came home and she said, you have to go to the emergency room. And she had my psychiatrist on the line. He was like, you have to go to the emergency room. I was like, what? Why? I took clonopin. Go away. Uh, I want to sleep. I'm unhappy. Like this is bad. And they both insisted that I go to the ER at NYU. So I decided rather than fight with them, I would go and I thought we were going so they could take my blood and confirm that in fact, I did not have any dangerous level of clonopin. I hadn't been drinking. I had no other drugs in my system. I was like, this is going to be quick. I kissed my uh, younger son who was 16 on the forehead, said, we'll be back. You know, ER, it could be six or eight hours, but we'll be back. I just want to calm down your aunt. So we get to the ER and I, having not had any significant mental health issues, um, nothing that wasn't, you know, dealt with through offices, you know, out visits, they decided that it had been a suicide attempt. And I later found out that my sister had told them it was a suicide attempt. I didn't know that at the time. And I kept saying to them, what do you mean? It's six milligrams. Do you think I'm stupid? I'm like, I had Tylenol at home. I could take Tylenol Anyway, this is apparently not how you talk to get out of an ER. So I was snarky and one of the doctors said to me, you know, have you ever had thoughts of suicide? And I said, well, you know, do you mean in a Hamlet to be or not to be kind of way? Of course. And then I looked at him and he didn't look like he recognized it at all. And I said, you know, if you mean in a do I want to die way, then no, I didn't ever before. And I didn't today. And I don't plan to. But my sister for reasons I'll never quite understand, was telling them she made an attempt, she's going to attempt. So they asked my sister, will you stay with her overnight? And my sister says, no. So, because she was mad at me with the fight. I don't think she understood what was going to happen either. So they put me on a 72-hour hold. Now, I admit, and I've written about this in an essay, by, by hour 48, I'm sure I was shrieking at them because I was being held against my will and I didn't understand why. And people were telling me they could hold me for up to 60 days. I had a 
a minor child at home who was alone. I had my building and classes were meeting and I was not meeting my classes. They let me have access to my computer long enough to send out an email to my apartment saying I was in the hospital, didn't know when I'd be released and would get in touch with them. But they decided that then because I was so annoyed that I was experiencing mixed mania. Now, I've never had a bipolar a diagnosis. I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, but I've never had self-harm. I've never had a suicide attempt. I was 51 years old. I've never had any history of any of this. And they decided that I needed to go to a psychiatric ward. Well, I said no. And they said, then we're going to have you involuntarily committed. And I was like, what? I even said to the guy, I said, you mean if I go to leave, you're going to physically stop me? And he said, yes. Now, meanwhile, these people are being horrific to me, particularly one of the nurses, this guy. He was like, you know, go easy on yourself. We're going to send you somewhere worse if you keep giving us a hard time. And by this time, I'm just terrified. And they sent me to a really, really, against my will, they strapped me to a gurney and took me to this horrible, horrible hospital that has a reputation as being scarier than Bellevue and where there were people who were waiting for trial, but were too mentally ill to be you know, in Rikers. And there was one man there who, who looked at me and was like, he called me pretty and he hissed it at me and he would, he would, he threatened to rape me and give me AIDS. And he, his bedroom was like five feet from mine because though there was a men's and women's wing, it was only divided by a door that had no lock. So he was schizophrenic and he, and there were other people there, many of them were schizophrenic. And so I had to listen to, you know, the, rantings that were very similar to my ex-husband's and they would also come and check on me every 15 minutes including the middle of the night so I never really slept so after about five days of this my father was in the hospital and we thought he was going to die and I thought I wasn't going to be able to see him because I was locked in this hospital I went to the head nurse in the middle of the night and I said I had a roommate and I said is there somewhere I can cry because I just you know my father's dying. I'm locked in here. I just want to cry and I don't want to bother my roommate. And she put me in this comfort room where it was all this padded stuff. And I just sat and cried for a while. And she came in in a little bit and she gave me some lukewarm tea. And I was like, oh, thank you. I was so grateful for it. And, and she came in a little while later and she said, we're going to get you out of here. And she brought me about one in the morning paperwork to um, request, I guess, a hearing if they were going to hold me. I don't know exactly what it was. She filled it all out, just had me sign it. And she submitted it before before dawn. And I honestly believe she didn't think the doctors would want to let me out because I've looked up this hospital and they hold people typically for over 30 days. And I think a lot of that has to do with money. That's just my opinion. I don't know that. But for whatever reason... The doctor, when she heard about it, shrugged and said, well, we don't have anything to hold her for. And I was discharged with a diagnosis of depression eight days after I went to the ER. And it was horrifically traumatic to me because through all of the stuff with my ex-husband, what I could depend on was my being a solid person. And then suddenly, like all of the rights and privileges of being a solid person adult were just yanked away from me. And I was in this thin hospital gown in this scary place, potentially to be held, not knowing what was happening with my son, not in contact with my son. It was terrifying. 
I'm nearly speechless. I mean, that is such a gross miscarriage of how the system is supposed to work. And and as you said, when you were talking about your ex-husband, the troubles you all had getting him treatment because they said, well, we can't force this. And yet how quickly they were to force this degree of involuntary treatment on you. As you said, it's hard to look at that and wonder, I wonder how much of that is down to gender, sex, you know, um, because, wow, that is very telling about looking at a woman. I mean, there's, you know, back in Freud's day, a woman with anxiety was called hysterical. <laughs> like, you can't just be somebody with anxiety or always. I mean, you know, there's always double standards for if a man is assertive, he's assertive. But if a woman's assertive, she's a bitch or unhinged or something like that. And it sounds like that's how you were being treated. Thank goodness for that nurse, female nurse, it sounds like it was, um, who who was there really looking at you being like, she does not look like somebody who belongs here. There's a famous study in psychology, this researcher group led by a researcher, Rosenhan, who they were looking to see what would happen if they showed up at the eight different researchers, showed up at eight different ERs. This was in the 1970s. And they all reported to the ER tags, hearing voices saying empty, hollow, and thud. But other than that, they did not lie about anything else they were experiencing. They kind of just wanted to see what would happen. And in all eight cases, all were admitted to the psychiatric unit. All were given a provisional diagnosis of schizophrenia. Once they were, just based on that, just hearing voices that say empty, hollow, and thud, and otherwise being perfectly normal. Once they were admitted to the unit, they didn't lie about anything anymore. They just were normal people existing on a psychiatric unit waiting to see how long it would take for people to notice they don't fit in here. They don't belong here. They should be released. And they had to call off the study because nobody was noticing um, just because of the power of that assumption of you've been brought here involuntarily. We now discount any feelings that you thoughts feelings you have or this label has been put on you therefore we know better than you we're not going to treat you as a human with the ability to make decisions for yourself and we're not going to notice that you actually don't belong here so thank goodness for that nurse who looked at you and how you were behaving and was like that sounds like how somebody would behave if they were being kept in a situation against their will <laughs> I mean, look, I can be obnoxious when I get there, and I'm sure I was obnoxious, but I don't think there was anything I did or said that was, I, I, kind of as you said, I don't think anything I did or said would have been seen as strange if I had been a man. Because I did, right before they decided to label me potentially mixed mania, which they never they never ultimately said I was, but that was at that time, I had just told them, more or less, who do you think I am? This is what I deal with. I am a mother. I own a building. I I went to Yale. I went to, and they put that down as grandiose. It was factual, but they put it down as grandiose. Now, as I said, I'm sure I was obnoxious, but I was not happy by then. I, I mean, there was definitely a gender element. So when the ER called my therapist, I had a therapist and a psychiatrist at the time who I saw regularly. And my therapist was a woman and she said, oh, no don't hold her. She's got tons of family responsibilities. She's fine. You know, I talked to her today. She's good. And then my male psychiatrist who hadn't seen me in three months and I got his notes from him. He, over the four years I had seen him had never expressed any concern about me. I would go, I would get my Adderall, my antidepressants and I would leave. 
and it was fine. And he said, hold her. My therapist who had seen me like that week said, no, she's fine. And had I'd known her for seven years. So I've actually looked into the research uh, or looked into the numbers to be involuntarily committed, at least until recently in New York, there have been some changes with, with Mayor Adams, but you had to be a danger to yourself or others. And so men are 10 times more likely to commit homicide women uh, than women. Men are three times more likely to commit suicide. So I think that, you know, I don't haven't run the numbers, but there should be about six times as many men as women in the psychiatric hospitals. There aren't. So women are being held under far, I mean, just from the raw numbers, under far less serious conditions as being a danger to themselves or others than men are. And I think it was highly gendered. And there was also a racial aspect that I benefited from and that has left me with a bit of survivor's guilt. When I left that horrible, horrible hospital, where, I mean, it was horrific. Uh, it was totally one floor of the cuckoo's nest. When I left, there was almost a riot because I could hear in the other room people who had been held there for months, which many of them had been. Almost all of them were minority. Somebody said, the white girl's out. And everybody freaked out and they rushed me and and my sister, I hadn't yet figured out her role unless she picked me up into the elevator and completed the paperwork downstairs. And I I have felt a sort of survivor's guilt because while I think many of the people who were in were genuinely mentally ill, I don't care. Uh, That's no reason to be held in a place like that and treated like that. So I think part of the reason I got out was because I was white and, and sort of read as obviously middle to upper middle class. But I think part of the reason I was put in was because I was female. And the whole thing just to me was an indictment of the system in ment- of mental health care in this country. It's just unbelievable. And you know, while these are some of these things are not necessarily themes we've talked about before on the show, like we are a place that brings together legal expertise and psychology expertise. And what happened to you is very much at the intersection of those two systems, right? And it was the worst of the worst of that intersection that hit you. Now, I'm sure some people are going to twist it and say, well, there are, you know, more women in there than one would expect because society actually cares more about women. <laughs> That's why, right, we want to make sure we help them. And that's probably some sort of patriarchal explanation that one could, could come up with here. But, you know, one thing that's interesting and to me, 10 times worse than the study Michelle referenced, which I remember hearing about in, in college, is you have never reported anything like that. Like it was your sister. For all they knew, your sister hated you or intended to harm you in some way. No, it wasn't quite like that, right? But she was wrong. She was wrong about you. You never said, I'm going to kill myself. You never said, I'm hearing voices. You never said, at least the people in that study claimed they had heard voices. You didn't even have that. You didn't even have that. Like at no point besides being upset, which you would think would be pretty understandable given the situation you were put in. And so there is this kind of revenge element too, potentially of like, you're being too full of yourself. You're talking about, you know, going to Yale and, and having various other degrees and having this professional situation and owning a building. It's like, oh yeah, well, we're going to show her, right? We're going to show her she's a nobody and that we have power. And, and it comes back to these incredibly scary power structures. And one thing I want to sort of bring this back to him, you are the mother of two sons, who I happen to know you're very proud of. (laughs) Uh, And you you talk about that and uh, publicly. And so how have you been able, as you've navigated all these incredible, 
incredible and incredibly scary things. How have you been able to convey to them the kinds of values that you want to see for the future and that you want to see in, in the men of the future, right? Who, they'll be leaders someday. Perhaps they already are in some settings. So how are you trying, I suspect, to change the world one step at a time through your parenting? Uh, that's a great question. And I want to kind of go a little bit to the side of it for a minute to talk about my older son, because he is 25. And when I was hospitalized, he was about 21, I guess, 22. He was on a trip in London and he didn't know about it. And I didn't call him because I didn't think I needed to. He has told me that I, this will never happen to me again because he will be there. And I think that's true. And I think it's true partly because he's a man. I think had a man come to claim me at the hospital, they would have let me go. Now I have to, you know, my sister has a, has a role in this. And the other part to understand about her is her daughter's boyfriend had committed suicide a year prior. So she was very traumatized, a long-term boyfriend of a couple of years. She was very traumatized by the, by a recent suicide. And so, you know, some people who I, I've published an essay on this, who have read the essay, are like, oh, she, you know, she, she comes across as really evil. And I, I hope that that's not the case because I think she was wrong. I think what she did was bad, but I don't think it came out of an evil place. I think it came out of a scared, reactive, traumatized place. And that was sort of up to the doctors to recognize you know, I did say to my psychiatrist when I came out, I said quite a bit to my psychiatrist when I came out, I said to him, you know, what are the odds of a woman who's 51 years old, who has no history of any of this stuff, suddenly being at high risk to be, you know, involuntarily confined. And he was like, well, you know, we didn't know we wanted to be safe. I'm like, that's not safe. You put me in an unsafe place, not safe. I also want to say another dynamic, being a woman in what I was in, a mixed sex Psych war is a terrifying thing. The guy who threatened to rape me, another guy who was very sweet, came up to me on Valentine's Day and asked me to be his Valentine. And I just looked at him and I smiled and said, oh, that's so sweet, but I don't celebrate Valentine's Day. And he took that and he was fine. But there was just a lot of sort of negotiating the attention of the men on the ward that was really scary and really draining. And I thought, you know, I'm demonstrating phenomenal, you know, insight into people to navigate this. How are they not seeing it? And um, I still don't know. But all of the people who had me hospitalized were men. And the one person who argued against it was a woman. So I do see a gendered element. Now, I will say I am still fighting NYU to get this suicide attempt off my record. They have said no so far. And uh, I have just been talking to an advocate because I said, I don't know what that means for my future. But it, it's not what happened, and I want it off my record. The hospital they sent me to did not put anything about suicide on my record, and the uh, my therapist has nothing about suicide. So it's only the people who are involved in hospitalizing me. But you were asking about my sons. Listen with my sons. I tell them exactly what I expect of them. You know, like when they were little, because they had witnessed violence between me and their dad, I said, look, if a girl hits you, you are not to hit her back. I said, you can even call the police. That's fine, but you don't hit her back. You never hit a girl or a woman. And people say, well, why didn't you just say a person? And the reason is my boys are from Brooklyn. If I told them not to hit a man or a boy when they were teenagers, they would have laughed in my face because they came up through a culture of basketball and roughhousing and fights, you know, where that was done. And that would not be my ideal. But I did not want them to think because they had seen that happen with their father, that that was the same in their relationship with women. 
I've got another question for you, bringing it back to dating for a bit. So having the experience you then had personally with the hospitalization system, just that terrible traumatic experience, and also the fact that somebody else's word could just count more than yours. And it was your sister's word at, at the time. And then a series of male professionals. Uh, but does it give you or has it given you hesitation with dating? Because I think about the people you're dating, particularly if it's like a more serious thing, they see you at your most vulnerable. And what if their word can count more than yours at some point, either out of fear or concern for you, as was the case with your sister, or out of a more manipulative or abusive type of mentality, especially because you date men. And as you said, they're more likely to be believed. Has it ever been scary for you dating and wondering, could my mental health cause an issue where where I could be in this vulnerable position again? That's such an interesting question. And the answer is no. But I think the answer is no, because I still fundamentally believe that I'm a credible and capable person. And so I, I don't have that fear. What has happened over the years is it kind of goes to something a friend said after I got, after my engagement was broken off. And she said, you know, you have a great little family and never join up with someone else who's not going to make that family better. And that's really hard to do. And I think that's been my feeling more. And, and now as I'm getting older, the financial stability element of it is kicking in too. Like, you know, would I really get married again? Because I, I'm not, I'm not well off, but I'm, I'm stable financially. And uh, I have already been with a man who jeopardized my economic stability at a time when luckily I could get it back. But now that I'm older, so I think it's more that I'm afraid they won't do their share uh, whether it's economically or emotionally or physically, rather than feeling like they are a threat to me. I will say that it took me a very long time to go back to the doctors. And it took me a very long time to find I, I am, and actually quite a bit of it is about the hospitalization. I do have a trauma therapist who I work with. And uh, a lot of what we work on has to do with regaining the level of confidence I had before that hospitalization. Because knowing that something that bad could happen to me and nobody would believe me, even though I said the same thing over and over again. And what killed me was I'm like six milligrams. Do you guys understand? The maximum prescribed dose is 20 milligrams. I'm like, that wasn't going to kill me. Nobody pumped my stomach. Nobody gave me charcoal. Like, and I did my, my postdoc in health policy. I'm perfectly capable of reading, you know, like what's potentially fatal and what's not. So that fear that society is going to disregard me is real, but I don't so much carry it over to dating. I'm glad to hear that that has <laughs> your way of being able to enjoy yourself in the dating world. One thing this makes me think of is I was just reading on Twitter a PTSD specialist talking about how in his work at a uh, specialized clinic, a very significant percentage of cases are from people who are there because they've experienced medical trauma. And so that, it, it, and, and it takes many different forms and some of it is not necessarily that doctors did something wrong. Sometimes something scary was just happening medically, but that any variety of these things, and we hear these stories, of course, having to do with 
uh, a childbirth also and, and women being treated badly there and just lots of so i just sort of want to flag that as as an issue for people and as something to, to think about that that is a phenomenon in society that i think we're we're going to be devoting or should be devoting a lot more time and attention to as time goes by but one question i wanted to sort of end things with is giving you the opportunity to give people advice so if you're looking at other women out there perhaps other women that have come out of a traumatizing marriage traumatizing divorce or loss like you're saying more like a, a widowhood experience and per or perhaps even a literal one like wh what is your advice for people to be able to go out there and enjoy themselves and and rebuild their lives and not let things kind of beat them down i'll tell you the piece of advice that i i do regularly give and i, I give it to people um i'm talking to one-on-one -on -one, but most of all i give it to my college students who i teach I teach a lot of criminology classes and in my criminology classes, and we often have to go outside of the textbook because it's not in the textbook. I also cover domestic violence and sex trafficking and more interpersonal violence that's experienced by women. And of course, I always have students in the class and I'm very sensitive to it who come from backgrounds where they were abused or their mothers or, or what have you. And yes, men are abused. However, severe abuse is much, much more likely to be uh uh, two women at the hands of men. What I tell my students is don't ever be ashamed of something someone else did to you. And I repeat that. I say, that's their shame. That's not your shame. And so that has been part of how I think I have survived this. And one of the things that I am still working on with the trauma from the hospital, because I think I'm pretty much past the trauma from the marriage, recognizing that they're not hearing me and not respecting my autonomy is not a condemnation of me. It's a condemnation of them. And I think the students often respond very well to that because many of them are carrying around this guilt of, or shame of, I come from a family with domestic violence, or I was a victim, or I was raped, or I was abused. And I say, that's not your shame. So that's one thing I would say, perhaps more controversially, certainly more superficially, I really believe that most women, you know, of course you can't always say all women, right? Most women have a capacity for understanding, creating, and being beautiful than, than we recognize. And I think feminine beauty and the feminine kind of impulse toward beauty is under-respected. And so I would say like, if you're in a really hard spot and, and you want that perfume, you know, like go get that perfume. Like beauty is a source of our strength and power. And we're so often called to be insanely strong when we're not respected. We need to live in beauty around us and within us. Well, this has just been a fabulous conversation, Rob, and like really I, I would even go as far as saying that some of the things you said, I believe will be life-changing uh, for some of our listeners. Um, I know I am very, very moved by everything you shared with us today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you both for having me. I really enjoyed this.
If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars so that others have a chance to listen to it as well. And make sure to subscribe so that you can get our future episodes. All our platforms are accessible at strangersoninternet.com. Again, that's strangersoninternet.com. Know that. You can become a part of our community by joining the Strangers on the Internet Facebook group or following us at Swipe Strangers on Twitter, Instagram, or Mastodon, where we are on the Fostodon server with two S's. We also appreciate support to defray our costs to run the podcast. You can help us out at Swipe Strangers on coffee.com, which is ko-fi.com. I would like to thank my husband, Carlos Farini, for sound editing, as well as Vlad Puyujuklu for permission to use his music for this podcast. Bye, everyone. Bye.